I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Livewire. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. Hope you're having a great week doing whatever you're doing. We have a great show in store for you. Our theme this hour is On the Contrary. And we got a bunch of guests who are doing things contrary to what the sort of perceived wisdom is. But here's the thing. It's totally working for them. Uh, these are not those kinds of people who are just contrarians for the sake of being a contrarian, because as you know, those kind of people are super annoying. And also it turns out I'm one of those kind of people, at least when it comes to my marriage. Let's pick things up on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. I'm the kind of person who, when my wife does something or says something that isn't what I would do or say, I cannot stifle the urge to contradict her. And when you are married to someone, there are just so many of those opportunities <laughs> that just arise. What makes this even worse is that we're not talking about anything major. She's not like on the internet late at night telling me that Trump might actually have a point about Obama's birth certificate. Like, she's not saying things that are like ob objectively crazy. We're, the disagreements are about things like how bright should the lights be in the room when you're watching TV at night? This is a long-running skirmish in my marriage. I vote for a little bit dim. If it's nighttime, it kind of makes it feel like a movie theater. It's kind of fun. My wife says full brightness. She thinks it is depressing when the lights are low. Last night, we were settling in for a romantic evening about to watch some Dateline NBC. <laughs> and I go over and I dim the lights and she gets up and walks right over and turns them back to full blast. And I said, why did you do that? And this was her answer verbatim. She said, because we're not stoners. <laughs> I've been thinking about that comment for 24 hours straight and I still don't really understand it. I don't even feel like those are related concepts. <laughs> but like, it's not a big deal, the light in the room. I should just 
let it go. It doesn't matter. But instead, what I do is every time I get up to go get something and I come back in the room, I just subtly dim it by .0005% casually as I'm coming in the room. And over the course of like 10 trips, I've brought it down to the level I want it to be at and she hasn't even noticed. It is like some kind of reverse gaslighting and it's pretty immature. We disagree about when food should be thrown out. My theory is you can scrape mold off of most things and if that doesn't work, you just toast the living tweedle out of it and that masks a lot of issues. She is strongly of the opinion that everything should be thrown out by, at the latest, the sell-by date. Yeah, the date that the grocery store establishes as when they have to sell it to you by. She doesn't just want to throw it out on the sell date. She goes making notes to figure out which things are coming up for their sell-by date in the fridge. So when that magical morning comes, she can be like a kid at Christmas and just start chucking stuff. I try to explain to her, think about it. The sell-by date, they're still allowed to sell it to that point. You're still allowed to bring it home and have it for some amount of time. If not, everyone would be eating all their groceries in the parking lot of the grocery store. Like, it... she is not buying that argument. Now, by the way, if it sounds like I'm trying to paint this as my wife is the only one with some kind of odd beliefs or habits, let me be very clear, I am no picnic to live with. I have a very charming personality trait where I will just make these grand statements that I have zero factual evidence for. And in fact, the more wrong I am about that statement, the more confident I become. I should run for president. I mean, this is the main, I mean, uh, I inherited this trait from my mother who once spent an entire Thanksgiving night arguing with the family that the movie Elf, starring Will Ferrell, actually stars the comedian Tim Allen. <laughs> On one side of the argument was my mom. On the other side was the entire family, which is about 30 people. And she did not budge. The most amazing part about this argument was that it unfolded while we were watching the movie Elf, starring Will Ferrell. <laughs> to this day, she has never admitted that that is the star of that movie. So this is, this is in my DNA. It's so entrenched in me, this feeling of not wanting to admit when I'm wrong, that when we watch Jeopardy, and by the way, I, uh, I said we, because I do not watch Jeopardy alone, because if I get the right answer and nobody is there to hear it, did it even happen? <laughs> Welcome to my brain, it's a very sad place. We're watching Jeopardy. I will yell out the answers, and when Alex Trebek gives a different answer, I will argue with him under my breath <laughs> until the next question that I happen to get right, which is usually from Potent Potables for some reason. That seems to be kind of my sweet spot. So I bring a lot to the table in terms of being annoying and in terms of doing things that should probably be contradicted. I will say this, the one area of my marriage that I feel like I've actually made some progress in this, and that is when we are driving together. Because my wife, let me start by saying, is a really good driver and she has a really good sense of direction, a much better sense of direction than I do. And even so, when we're in the car and she is driving, roughly 1,000 times per minute, I disagree with whatever decision she's making. 
the road she's taking, the light she's not gunning it for. It's a constant series of thoughts in my head about how she should be doing it differently. And for many years, I shared those thoughts with her. <laughs> it came to its I, kind of, um, I guess, I don't know if you want to say high point or low point, but it reached some sort of a, an apex about six months ago. We had an entire date that was ruined because of the argument we had in the car going to the date. And it was about a choice of road, the difference being like a minute or two. And I got home that night and I was like, something's gotta change. And so I decided that I was going to really rethink how I was in the car. And I enacted something in my own mind I titled The Code of Silence. <laughs> I just decided that I was not going to at any point comment in any way about anything related to the driving when she was driving. And so I started this code of silence and something incredible happened. We took so many wrong turns. I mean, like insane amounts of wrong turns. I probably spent an extra six hours at red lights that we could have got through because they were yellow. We definitely got on the freeway going north when we wanted to be going south like three times. And also, it has been the best six months of my life. Because I realize it doesn't matter, right? Like, it's not that big of a deal. We're going to get where we're going. And all of a sudden now, I, like, enjoy being in the car with my wife. We, like, hold hands, and we, like, talk about our lives, and we listen to music. And it's, like, I, it's like night and day. So here's my plan for 2018. I want to try to take that principle and apply it to the other areas of my relationship. So I want to use that same approach for questions of, like, when the Greek yogurt gets thrown out or if both of the pets need actual birthday parties with presents and hats. <laughs> Do they understand that? I would say no, but whatever. I'm really gonna try to change some of these things and I'm gonna keep you posted throughout 2018 on how it's going, okay? One thing I'm, thank you. Well, I did, this is true, I did buy some lower wattage light bulbs for the TV room. <laughs> I did not put them in yet, but I bought them before I made this decision, so they're grandfathered in. So I just wanted to say that, too. Let's get our first guests out here. They are beloved radio hosts, and now they're authors who are staking their professional reputations to the extremely contrarian take that brunch, yes, brunch, that favorite activity of the Portland leisure class, brunch is ruining America. Their new book is Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party. Please welcome Rico Galliano and Brendan Francis Noonan to Livewire. Rico and Brendan, welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us here, Luke. Um, I want to just warn you, you know, this book is is pretty critical of brunch, and here in Portland, you are really behind enemy lines. <laughs> I recognize that. Yep, I recognize like, that. I the feel belly like of the beast. Somebody needs to just put their arm around you and, like Jack Nicholson style, say, face it, this is brunch town. <laughs> I think I saw people waiting in line for brunch on the way here. To, yeah. Like, for tomorrow. Never too early. Yeah, I think they, I saw scrambles in their eyes. They were ready for it. Frightening. Uh, in, in your uh, professional opinions, uh, and as authors of this book, why do you think brunch is hell? 
Let me start by saying we were tweeting about Brunch as Hell today, and some guy said, yeah, but it's great for hangovers. And I want to know what part of waiting in the sun on the sidewalk for like an hour for a seat, then going inside, spending $18 on eggs, having a very weak orange juice mimosa thing. Now you're very tired and you slouch home. What part of that alleviates pain? Is that, it doesn't make any sense to us. When you it, say it like that, it does sound kind of lame. It sounds weird and bad is what it is. And, and uh, you know, basically what you're doing is you're taking one of the two days off that you've worked your entire week to have, and you're stabbing it in the heart. That, that seems to be kind of the, the primary uh, argument against brunch seems to be that it is a real uh, torpedo to the submarine that is your day. Yes. Uh, explain, Brendan. Well, it's just, I mean, he captures it perfectly in that um, after you do that, once your day is done, well, you know, you haven't written your screenplay, you haven't taken that hike, you haven't even, like, laid in bed with your partner. There's a million things you can do. You can even do nothing. But after brunch, you're just listless and drooling, um, and you're unable to uh, concentrate and, and get something done that will make you feel better about yourself. And at the end of the day, a dinner party, now that's a perfect time to maybe drink too much and drool. Um, and it's also another, it's a time where it's in someone's home, you're inviting them to your house, and you can just have a higher quality leisure time as opposed to going to a restaurant where they're just rushing to flip tables and they're going to get you out of there pretty quick. You guys write in the book that uh, brunch kind of uh, crosses into this sort of uncanny valley. Yeah. What do you mean yeah. by that exactly? <laughs> well, one of our principles is to have a really great life, you need to perfect imperfection. You need to embrace imperfection. A person's home, when they invite you into their home for a dinner party, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be polished. It's not going to be, you know, perfectly clean. You go into a brunch spot, it's spookily clean. Everything is all bright and shiny, and the lemon wedge is, like, all perfectly yellow. And it's like, what is that? It, it's like seeing a robot trying to be a human and, and that's not true. And, and if you go into one of these brunch spots that looks kind of ramshackle, well, that's just pretending to be ramshackle. It's just undergirded by crunched data business plan that's right. to draw you in. That's not, it's not real, you guys. Well, then, what do you think accounts for the popularity of brunch? Is it just too many white people? <laughs> I mean... Just people are on autopilot. I feel like brunch is easy. And I think there's a time and place for brunch between 19 and 22 for like those three years when you finally have a little money in your pocket and, you're, and you don't know how to, you don't have an apartment you want to bring anyone home to, then that's a good place to have brunch. Uh, but I think the popularity of it is as adults, we feel like that's relaxing to just go uh, be taken care of and be spun out and kicked into the street. And the other part of it is dinner parties, um, they provoke anxiety because people feel like they have to be white tablecloth affairs. They feel like they have to have some perfectly Instagrammable meal, uh, which really isn't the case. That's right. The book is Brunch is Hell. We've got uh, Brendan Francis Newham and Rico Galliano here, the authors of that book. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're going to take a short break and then come back and then talk about the, the opposite state of affairs, the dinner party. Stay with us. This is Livewire. Livewire gets support from Fully. You know, scientists are starting to figure out that pretty much every single thing we did in the 1950s, stuff that was considered normal and healthy, uh, was not normal and healthy. It was kind of making us sick, making us unhealthy. Cigarettes, BB guns, TV dinners. Don't even get me started on lawn darts. The history of becoming healthy is basically a slow dismantling of the 1950s piece by piece. The latest target, the traditional office desk. Sitting behind one all day is very, very bad for you. 
Like, you've probably noticed this. It feels bad after a whole day of doing that. And that is why we at LiveWire, whether it's the LiveWire offices or when I'm on stage hosting LiveWire, it's why we use sit-stand desks provided by the wonderful folks at Fully. Fully is the Portland, Oregon company that has been making and distributing amazing furniture that keeps you productive, but also engaged for years. Fully knows this stuff better than just about anybody else out there. And they've been great supporters of Livewire. We really appreciate it. I'll tell you when I appreciate it, a moment like right now, when I'm recording this and I'm sitting on a TikTok stool that they sent me. I also use a Capisco chair that they're the exclusive U.S. distributor of when I'm at Livewire and I do need to sit down. Because, of course, we all want to sit down still sometimes, but fully makes the stuff uh, that you can sit on that's going to keep you healthy, keep you engaged, and keep your brain active. To find out more about what they're doing, head over to fully.com slash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland this week. Our theme is on the contrary, and we are talking to Brendan Francis Noonan and Rico Galliano. You may know them from the Dinner Party Download radio show and podcast, as well as their new book, Brunch is Hell. Um, this book is sort of a, a criticism of brunch, but really it's a celebration of dinner parties. Thank you. Um, what are the... What are the, uh, the keys to throwing a good dinner party? You, whether you wanted to or not, you've kind of become the national experts on this topic because of your radio show we, and podcast. Well, we wrote the book on it now. So <laughs> Literally. we officially wrote the book on it. Well, I mean, the first rule of dinner parties, it's right there in the title, is to have dinner and to party. Yeah. That's it. Now, that seems deceptively simple. The point is there should be no agenda at a dinner party. You can't have a boss at a dinner party. You can't be setting up people at a dinner party. A holiday party isn't a dinner party because there's an agenda there. A dinner party is really, we consider it recess for adults. This is a place which is made up of less than 25% of your family because with more than, <laughs> with more than that, there's an agenda taking place. Uh, we, we say suggest... More the, than that, my mom's in the corner yelling that Tim Allen is a star of Elf. <laughs> That's right. We say save that Freudian morass for Thanksgiving. That's Beautiful. a separate thing. Um, and so that's, yeah, rule number one is to have people in your home and ask them for nothing and just feed them. Um, most of our lives, we have to be, uh, we're employees, we're employers, we're in control, we're soccer coaches, we're doing all this stuff, but this is the one place where you can let that go. So those are the, like the, the basics. What now, what elevates a dinner party from just meeting the minimum definition of a dinner party to being actually a good dinner party? Oh, well, I mean... <laughs> A lot of things. Com conversation would be a great thing to have. What you're trying to do is get stories out of people. And we, it, it's fascinating. We actually have a quote from Alan Alda, of all people, who actually wrote a book about sort of the way people share information. And it is true. When people tell stories, their minds literally sync up, like their, their brains light up in certain ways so that it's almost like you're mind melding with people. So if you can get people to tell interesting stories, you're actually sort of creating community and getting everybody literally on the same wavelength. So why do you think that the dinner party has declined in, in it, maybe not popularity in people's minds, but certainly in frequency. Yeah, I think the rise of foodieism has made people more interested in cooking, but also made people uncomfortable to cook and invite people into their homes. Uh, we suggest that only 51% of the food needs to be made at home. You need over you half need the food. just 51%. Just over the finish line there to make it a reflection of you. It needs to be your food. 
Uh, that's one thing that prevents people. I think people are, I mean, we're in Portland. We wrote this from New York and LA. Our, our apartments are small. And I think people are afraid to pe bring people into their homes. They feel like it needs to be perfect. I think that uh, presents anxiety. And I think that people have been lulled into this false sense of uh, security that brunch and restaurants are really going to bring them full joy. I got a couple of quick questions here. Um, music at a dinner party. Uh, I am one of those people who will spend a day putting together like a six-hour playlist that I want to just like crescendo with the Scissor Sisters cover of Comfortably Numb right as everyone's getting a little buzzed. Yeah. And then someone else wants to plug in their iPod and because they have jock jams on there or something. <laughs> Is, are you a bad host if you kind of rule your stereo with an, with an iron fist at your own dinner party? Absolutely not. You're oh, a good okay, host. Good. It's a musical dictatorship. Uh, absolutely. For sure. Either you're in control or you hand the control over to one other person. Otherwise, it's an absolute free-for-all. You know, one moment you're listening to Sly and the Family Stone, another moment you're listening to Rihanna, which could be fun for the after party, but not for the meal itself. So you need to take control, and I think you are wise to create a playlist beforehand, and you can just set it and forget it. What about children at a dinner party? Yours or your friends wanting to bring them? There's an actual <laughs> groan of disgust. <laughs> children, how dare they? Uh, uh, we, we, do, we have said, as we said before, dinner parties are recess for adults who are not adults, children. But, <laughs> but it is very important. First of all, we love kids, and it is important to, to enculturate them to the pleasures of the form of, of the dinner party. I'm glad to hear you say that, Rico, because even though on, on one level it feels like it's for the adults, maybe it's a little bit less fun if there's kids there. I remember being a kid at, like, dinner parties, or for me, it was like a lot of weird church potlucks and prayer meetings, but where you're a kid and you get to be around adults and observe them in their environment. If you're a certain kind of kid, at least the kind of kid I was, that was like everything to me. Absolutely. But, but so the, the catch is here that they should be old enough that they can take care of themselves so that they can observe from afar. The adults can have <laughs> right. their time and the kids can have, so the kids need to be just old enough that they can entertain themselves without setting themselves on fire or, and, and like going to the bathroom. That would and, be helpful. And they have to be able to hold their liquor. That would be at, at your That's dinner right. parties, probably. Obviously. The book is Brunch is Hell, Brendan Francis Noonan and Rico Galliano, everybody. All right, Rico and uh, Brendan, your new book, Brunch is Hell, points out uh, what you guys see as the sort of drawbacks of the brunchification of our culture. Um, but what you don't really get into very much are the caloric repercussions of brunching it on the reg. Uh, here's what we have done. We have done some research uh -oh. on popular restaurant brunches and how uh -oh. many calories those breakfasts and brunches contain. We're going to give you a caloric number because you are the brunch experts slash haters. <laughs> you have to guess if that is over or under the actual calories in these breakfasts. We're we calling it caloric over under. Three, four, count, count, calorie count. We give you the dish and you guess the amount. Game on. Wow, wow. that's amazing. That's hot. Yeah. It's like Schoolhouse Rocks, but the schoolhouse became gentrified and turned into a restaurant. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing. Okay, so this is a pretty simple game. I'm going to give you a caloric amount, and you just have to try to decide, and you've got to come to consensus on this um, as, the, as the, the authors of Brunch is Hell. 
if you think it's over or under. The Denny's Grand Slam, okay? 1,000 calories, over or under? i say it's more. Far I have more. no idea calories. Like, I don't really think about calories. Yeah, oh, really yeah. Brendan. <laughs> I'm you know. so sorry for you. I'm uh, just, like, beautiful. So I'm, I don't I'm, even know about <laughs> calories. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. <laughs> professional just... <laughs> author and turtleneck wearer. Exactly right. Do you so think the I'll Denny's... Say, I'll say it, 1,000 sounds... Wrong. Sounds, so, it sounds higher than, than a Grand Slam. No, I'm saying it's way too low for a Grand Slam. So, Rico, your opinion is a Grand Slam has more than 1,000 calories. Yes. Brandon, your opinion is that it has less than 1,000 calories. Sure. Okay. I will say that Rico is 100% right, and Brandon, yes. you are 100% wrong. Yes. It is 1,108 calories, 53.5 grams of fat. Nice. How about the Jumbo Rudy Tutti Fresh and Fruity from IHOP? Over or under 1,300 calories? Fruity sounds healthy. Yes, definitely. Um, it does have so, sausage, bacon, and ham. Uh, it has compote and pancakes. So the compote's a vegetable yeah, or definitely. fruit. Yeah, that sounds healthy. And protein, I'm going to say it's under. Under 1,300 calories. That is Brendan Francis Noonan's official answer, Rico Galliano. Are the ingredients you just said real? It has compote and... and, and is it meat compote? No, no, no. It's a, it's a fruit compote. But with bacon and... and, and oh, yeah, you'll definitely under. get some breakfast meats in there. There's, there's bacon, there's sausage, there's also ham. I still... I, <laughs> then I say that is, again, too low. It's got to be more, more calories than that. And once again, I'm going to say, Brendan, wrong, Rico, mm -hmm. correct. Yeah. It has more than 1,300 calories. It is over. It has 1,400 calories. Oh, my God. If you are looking for the diet choice, the regular Rudy Tootie comes in at a mere 840 calories. <laughs> How about... The Garbage Plate, a regional delicacy in Rochester, New York, one of the many places you can buy their new yeah. book, Brunch is Hell. Yep. <laughs> Here's what's in the Garbage Plate. Home fries, baked beans, French fries, macaroni, salad. It sounds healthy. Meats, salad. mustard, onion, and hot sauce. Meats. Plus wow. two slices of Italian bread with butter on it. I feel like you're reading my journal. <laughs> this is amazing. Over or under 700,000 calories? <laughs> That's a tough one, Luke. That's tough. But it I'm has gonna, beans in it. I'm going to say under. I'm going to say under because the word salad was said. You're catching on to this game. It is, in fact, under. It is a mere 1,664 calories. Oh, wow. God. The breakfast of champions. 1664. Yeah. This feels like a there. perfect time to end things. And thank <laughs> is this Brendan Francis Newman and Rico Galliano for being here. Their new book is Brunch is Hell. All right, thanks. Thank you, Luke. All right, our theme this hour is On the Contrary. And we asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland... Um, what is your most contrarian opinion? And this shouldn't surprise me, you being public radio listeners, but you have some contrarian opinions, and you've shared them with us. Rick said, bagpipes improve almost any tune. <laughs> uh, Beverly, who is going to need a police escort out of here, said, facial hair sucks. Take it up with Beverly, everybody. Judy, with a surprisingly practical contrarian opinion, actually money conquers way more than love most days. Uh, 
Greg says their contrarian opinion that nobody else buys into. Hybrid and electric cars can't be trusted. They're too quiet. What are they up to? <laughs> I'm going to withhold this person's name because I do feel like they could come under a real threat of physical danger, particularly here in Portland. This person's most contrarian opinion, no dogs at all. Well, success, it's a contrarian opinion that not many other people agree with. Our next guest's career as a writer seems contrary to whatever these supposed rules of doing that are. Her books, The Small Backs of Children and The Book of Joan, are bestsellers. Her latest is The Misfits Manifesto, which started as a TED Talk, which now has over 2 million views. I just have to say, I watched it yesterday at my house, and I just basically started sobbing at my desk. It is that powerful. Um, I have now gotten myself together, I'm happy to say, and we are overjoyed to have her here. Please welcome to Livewire, Lydia Yuknovich. Lydia, welcome to Livewire. My pleasure. Uh, I have to be honest. I don't know if I even really believe in TED Talks anymore. Nor do I. Like, sometimes they just feel like somebody wanted to give a TED Talk, so they came up with some supposedly clever way to think about the world. And yet, I watched your TED Talk yesterday, and it just totally destroyed me in a good way. Excellent. Is that, I mean, have, what kind of reaction have you been getting to this? Well, part of my jam is that I make people cry. <laughs> really? <laughs> Not necessarily meaning to. I know what you mean about TED Talks. On the one hand, they seem like sound bites of cleverness, but then the other thing I was thinking about is that with TED Talks, nobody is the perfect expert on everything because there are 10 million ways to hear a story or think about something, and it kind of democratizes different truths instead of claiming there's one way to think about things. So when I thought about it that way, I was able to get on the stage. But then they put me on the stage after John Legend, and I almost died. That's a tough, that John Legend. That's a tough warm-up act. Yeah. yeah, it was awesome. Not the used car dealer John Legend, but the Grammy-winning, internationally yeah. famous singer John Legend? Seven or nine Grammys. Jeez, Louise. How long did you work on that TED Talk? I think about seven months of practicing... Um, I'm an introvert, like hardcore introvert, so I'm practicing alone in my underwear in a room with a computer of people watching me, telling me what I'm doing well or not well. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Were they with the TED organization, or is this like a webcam situation? <laughs> I charged money for... Yeah, well, if you're a writer, you got to make a living somehow, right? It, it was the TED folk. It was the most strange alien experience of my life. And occasionally I just run out of the room and hide in the bathroom and they'd wait for me to come back. Uh, we're talking to Lydia Yuknovich. Uh, our theme this week on Livewire is On the Contrary. Um, your memoir, The Chronology of Water, uh, talks a lot about your experience as a competitive swimmer. And you're still, uh, if your website is to believe, you're still one hell of a swimmer. What makes you so good at swimming? Uh, these 
As in she's my pointing to shoulders her shoulders because my stroke was butterfly, and I'm one of those people who who is very awkward and physically bumbly in the world. Is there anyone else in the audience besides me who's physically bumbly? Please make a sound. I think the more efficient way is to ask the one person who's not to raise their hand. It's just way faster that way. But if you put me in water, I'm I'm weightless. It uh, doesn't matter if I'm beautiful or not. It doesn't matter what my successes or failures are. I'm just a mammal in water, and it's okay. Did it always feel that way? Because you were a very competitive swimmer as a, as a young, young person. Yeah, but I never cared about winning. I just happened to be good at something, and writing's the same way for me. I, I happened to be able to swim in language the way I happened to be able to be in water. I came from a home that was dark and not great, like a lot of you, and swimming got me out of the house and saved my life. Are there points in your writing work and your writing career where any of that sort of swimming experience and discipline and what have you informs how you write? Every day, um, particularly not so much swimming pools, but ocean waves. So I'm not a disciplined writer in addition to being an introvert. Uh, I can't write every day. And so one day I came up with the idea, because I'm a water person, that the metaphor of a wave, you know, they surge, they get big, they come, they crash, they come all the way to your feet gently, and then they go away back into the ocean to build energy, kinetic energy. That's how I write. When I figured that metaphor out, I thought, I'm going to be okay because I'm a wave. <laughs> and that works for me. So maybe I write every day for four days. Maybe I don't write for a month or two. Maybe I go on a three-day binge writing <laughs> thing. And when it's coming, it's the wave. And when it's not, it's going out building ideas. Can you remember when it started to crystallize in your mind, this idea of the waves as opposed to the more conventional way of doing this? Yeah, the TED Talk. Really? Yeah, because I didn't die. <laughs> it's not a joke. I, I literally thought I was going to die. And my husband was with me, and he was in the audience. And I looked at him right when they called my name, after John Legend, <laughs> to go up on the stage. I looked at him for support, you know, my rock, my love, my soulmate, 18 years. And the look on his face is, you are so effed. But the thing is, I didn't die. And when I came out of it, which, you know, it took me about two weeks to even comprehend that that had happened and I was still me in my life, um, I started hearing from other people. And I realized the reason to do it wasn't for me at all. The reason to do it was to remind us that all of our stories matter, even the quiet people, even the people who are bumbly, even the people who mess it up daily, our stories deserve some light on us, too. And when I realized that, I started deciding the way I write is okay. Yeah, as, as a person who uh, has had lots of big plans in the back of their mind and lots of things that have moved from the front burner to the back burner to the side burner to the front burner in terms of accomplishments and projects. I found the TED Talk and then the subsequent book, The Misfits Manifesto, I found them just to be so 
comforting because it's so easy to beat yourself up about, particularly if you're talking about creative stuff, the stuff you're not doing. And I feel like this is the best I've ever read at, at helping lower my anxiety about all the stuff I'm not doing. Now, if I die having never done anything, I blame you because <laughs> you gave me permission. But at least right now, I'm in this blissed out like three-day period where I'm like feeling like it still might happen. A bit high. I kind of am because, I mean, one of the things you talk about is that you got, by the way, we're talking to Lydia Yuknovich. Uh, her latest book is The Misfits Manifesto. This is Livewire Radio. One of the things you talk about um, in the TED Talk is that you had this, you won this contest, you won this chance to go to New York and to meet with all of these incredibly powerful literary agents and publishing houses right, right. and all this stuff. And it was really happening for you. And yet it took you 10 years more. Be before you actually followed up with yeah. these people who were more or less begging you to, to be able to represent you or to get some pages from you. <laughs> what happened in those 10 years? Well, when the opportunities came to me, I was in my 20s, like 25, I won this big writing prize, and I got to go to New York and meet all these amazing agents and editors, and so it was kind of being offered to me on a beautiful plate, but where I was in my life was in a place where all I felt was a sad, quiet stone at my throat, and I couldn't accept any of the offers, and it was right there in front of me, and, and the thing I know now, almost 20, 25 years later, is that for some of us, saying yes or accepting what's in front of you isn't easy because we don't believe we deserve it. And it could take us years. Like for me, it took 10 to 20 years for me to stand up inside the thing that was being handed to me right in front of me and to say, you know, I might, I might be able to stand up inside this too. And so I'm kind of here to remind any of the rest of you that uh, we all deserve a place at the table, and it doesn't matter what shape it takes, and we're not all going to look like celebrity culture, and that's uh, its own kind of beauty. The weird kind of bended stars still shine in the sky. So I'm here for you. If you start a religion, I am signing up. <laughs> I want to be the first adherent to the Church of Lydia Yuknovich. Thank you so much for being on Livewire. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Our next guest is basically a professional contrarian. He delivers the infamous State of the Industry Address at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival every year. He's been a judge on Last Comic Standing. Uh, as far as I can tell, he's tweeted at least one angry thing at revered comedian Ricky Gervais every day for the past three years. You can also hear him on Bob's Burgers and his podcast, Thought Spiral. Please welcome the amazing Andy Kindler to Livewire.
All right, now look. People at home, I'm going to do a lot of jokes that require you seeing what the joke was. So it will not be funny at home. But later on, when you get the DVD extra, then it'll be a whole different situation at that point. Uh, that's not my strongest opening. I, let's not kid ourselves. If I had to say, was it a funny opening? No. Was, it, uh, was I hesitant? Yes. Was I thinking about what of my uh, amazing array of jokes should I do? Certainly. How long am I going to keep asking myself questions? A little bit longer. How, uh, how long till the bit gets old? It's already old. But, you know, I just sold a, a show. It's called Juviver, and uh, we lock a family of Jews in a uh, house for the High Holy Days. And at the end of the week, we vote a Jew into the house. Because we're annoying, is the whole point. Annoying. The Jews want to get out. On Big Brother, they want to stay. In my show, they want to get out. There's a hotel in Los Angeles, and it's named, uh, it's called, it's named Extended Stay America. I don't want to stay at a hotel that implies that things haven't gone well for me. Where am I staying? I'm staying at the, uh, all, uh, all my job prospects fell through and I don't have enough money to get back to Kentucky. Sweets. That's where I'm staying. Oh, where am I staying this week? I'm staying at the, my friends got tired of putting me up in. That's where I, I said, oh, you like it? You, you, you enjoy a third example of the joke? No problem. Pick me up at the, I guess my parents are right. I'll never amount to anything. I'm a complete failure lodge. You see how easy comedy is? It's three of the same jokes in a row. All I did was change the style of hotel on the punchline. And that's how I do it. And that's how I read all about it in my, uh, in my autobiography, Below the Radar. Whenever I'm shopping at the department store and there's music in the background, whoever's helping me, I, I say to them at one point, is this Drake? Most of the time, it is Drake. That's the thing that's amazing about it. Two more jokes. The first joke's okay, but the, are your socks all fastened up good? I mean, because I'll knock them off with these last two jokes. You know what they say? Happy wife, happy life. What kind of a sociopath are you that you need to have a rhyme to remember to treat your wife respectfully? What kind of a monster are you? How does the rhyme go? Separate your wife from all her friends. Destroy her emotionally. Happy something. Here's my final joke, and I'm telling you, I don't have the insurance if anyone busts a gut, so just uh, keep, it in the, keep it on the DL. I don't know what I'm saying. So uh, I walk into a clock store the other day. I didn't, but it sounds plausible. I walked to a, a clock store the other day, and the uh, woman behind the counter said, would you like a second hand? I said, not on my watch! Thank you. Andy Kindler. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Hey, it's Luke. I just want to give a special thanks this episode to Kelly Griffin of Seattle, Washington, and Brian Fink of Portland, Oregon. 
Kelly and Brian are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month. We are so thankful for their support. It is genuinely what allows us to keep this whole thing going. So really, a big thanks to Kelly and Brian. We could not do this without you. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. We're talking to comedian Andy Kindler here on the show. Hi, Andy. Good to see you. It's great to see you. Thank you for coming and doing the show. Um, I saw something you wrote on Twitter yesterday. You were walking around Portland, and I think you were joking, but you said, everybody here hates me. Yeah. Does that really how you feel your relationship with Portland is? No, no, that's why, this, that's the rela- and that's exactly why I get into Twitter fights, and I'm arguing at 4 o'clock in the morning with a robot, and I'm, 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 I'm asking my wife, why does Love's to Serial Kill 666 have a problem with my Portland material? No, it wasn't about Portland at all, because I love Portland. It was basically, that was the daydreaming thing I came up with, was these people hate me. Is that a common loop in your brain as yes. you're moving through your day. Yes, because I just got into therapy. I'm the oldest Jew to enter therapy. I got an award for it. And I didn't realize that I thought I loved myself, but apparently I did not. I disliked myself intensely. And uh, I was living my life trying to get other people to fill in the love inside me that wasn't coming from me. I'm doing a TED talk, all right, or something. I don't know what I'm doing. So knowing that I had this dialogue of saying I hate myself uh, was very important to me because then you realize that you can't live your life trying to get everyone to love you every second. Is that changing your act at all? Check out my new show, Aging Jews. Uh, (laughs) It's changed everything about me because I was under the misapprehension that I was confident about myself, but I wasn't confident. I was a musician before I was a comedian, and now I realize the only thing that held me back was my opinion of myself, and I was in my 20s. You know, also, I, w- I, was, in a, I was playing in a cover band, and one night the guy handed up a note and said, uh, stop riffing in between the songs. <laughs> cut the ch- he said, cut the chatter. So, so you were like kind of, you were doing I was trying comedy to material. Crowd, yeah, but uh, even in the comedy, I was always, my whole family was funny, so I, knew I came, I didn't doubt it as much, but then I would uh, just say, you, you, maybe you are funny, but you're gonna blow it, you're gonna say something wrong at the, you know, so I didn't realize all, there was a lot of self-sabotage going on, you know? We're talking to Andy Kindler right now, um, the amazing Andy Kindler, he's got a new podcast called Thought Spiral. Um, you also d- are well known for delivering this kind of state of the industry update slash roast slash come to Jesus moment with the comedy industry every year at the Just for Laughs Festival. So how do you feel about the state of the comedy industry? Okay, so I'm glad you said that. Here's where I have the problem. And I think it may be the full exotene, which I get... Is that the generic Prozac? Yes, and it's, I, get tw- I get 80 milligrams a day for $20 for three months. <laughs> and I didn't realize that you get the dry mouth from the full exotene. It's Prozac. Okay, <laughs> see my delivery. A lot of people say they don't like my delivery. I say it's not delivery, it's DiGiorno. <laughs> uh, so... The other symptom is I f- often forget exactly what I said. So this So what sounds, you just said to me, yeah. so how do you... Well, I don't well let me, now. I'm, now I'm more interested in what's going on this, with this drug cocktail you're on. Um, <laughs> so that sounds like something that you must have had to really actually kind of consider, right? If you're, if you're going to take something that's going to maybe help 
uh, stabilize your mood or po uh, provide some positive effects, but also give you dry mouth and maybe cause you to forget your jokes as a professional comedian. <laughs> Did you, I mean this question quite seriously, what was the um, decision-making process? Well, luckily I had gotten to, I had gotten to what I call rock bottom in my life. I'm not a drinker, but I got into rock bottom. That's like you're, ar I'm arguing with everyone on the internet. Uh, I'm, I'm making fun of Ricky Gervais. Yeah, that was He's a phase I remember. He's angry at me. People are saying I'm obsessed. And so I had to deal with all of these uh, uh, different things that was like uh, life-threatening, it seemed like. What was your question again? <laughs> but um, no. I have been doing comedy for 33 years, okay? So it, when I, before I did comedy, I had terrible obsessive compulsive disorder, but I didn't know that you could get help for it. It's a very sad thing, folks. I grew up an upper middle class Jew, and I was trying to find my way. But I didn't know you could get help for it. Everything I'm saying is sarcastic. I, I knew you couldn't get help for it. I didn't think you could get help for it. But when I was driving in the car, and this is a true story, I used to think I'd hit somebody in the car. Yeah. And I would ride around the block to make sure they were okay, right? And I, and so that obsessive compulsive, and I would think of for hours after I was in the car, did I hit that thing? Did I not hit that thing? That is obsessive compulsive disorder. I don't have the germ thing. I wish I could trade the germ thing for the think you hit something in the road thing. So my mother, the only advice she gave me that was good, no, I'm serious. She just said, I could get, that. that's very treatable. I have ADD and OCD, which is not, and don't give me this, you don't believe it's a thing. Believe me. ADD, I don't know what the word, the word, the letters stand for because I don't have the focus to look it up. <laughs> I, 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 it's no joke though, I don't have the focus to write one about. But, so I was already on stage losing my place every 10 seconds. I've lost my place on Letterman, like my biggest fear. No way. Yeah, the bit, the bit. You, you, you were on, you were like one of Letterman's absolute favorite comedians. You were on all the time. You would do bits and stuff. When did you lose your, your train of thought on Letterman? Well, what happened was, like, see, I had these cards in my pocket. You don't have to know that. I never take them out unless I really can't remember anything. And on Letterman, I loved him so much, I wanted to do everything the way he wanted to do it. For example, I should have worn a jacket tonight. I don't know why I didn't. But he wants people to wear a jacket, I wore a jacket. He doesn't want, he doesn't like it when comics use a teleprompter, so I never wanted to use a teleprompter. I would memorize the bits by keywords in my head, so I got to the bit that was about Michelangelo, but I couldn't remember what the bit was. I knew the, the heading was Michelangelo. What did you do? <clears throat> I went like this. <clears throat> Boy, I seem to be coughing. And uh, it seemed like an hour went by, but it didn't. Then I remembered what the bit was. What was the bit? The bit was um, Michelangelo often dur during the slow season, which I thought was funny right away. Yeah. But Michelangelo <laughs> often during the slow season, he would tell his clients, hey, I'll throw the walls in. No extra charge. <laughs> you like that Sistine Chapel thing I did? I'll give you the same price. Just a couple of frescoes. He's Italian. That's why he talked that way. Michelangelo. See, you got him back. Andy Kindler, everybody. Our musical guests this hour have been thrilling Portland audiences since they got together back in 2013, back when their lead singer was just the tender age of 74. <laughs> He's all grown up now. Please welcome Ural Thomas and the pain to Livewire.
Some say, why me? Somebody tell me. That's going to do it for our show. Thanks to our guests, Rico Galliano, Brendan Francis Noonan, Lydia Yunkovich, Andy Kindler, and Ural Thomas and the Pain. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and our editor. And Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake, and our on-air mix is by Jason Powers. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing director, and our operations manager is Tim Harkins. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we got to thank member James Dash of Oakland, California for his support. For more information about our show or how you can listen to the podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Ural Thomas and the pain. Thank you very much. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our 
many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us. And uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 